You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. SpyCast's sole purpose is to educate our listeners about the past, present and future of intelligence and espionage. Every week, through engaging conversations, we explore some aspect of a vast ecosystem that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. We talk to spies, operators, mole hunters, defectors, analysts and authors to explore the stories and secrets, tradecraft and technology of the secret world. We are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax and enjoy the show. This week's episode is one from our vault of over 560 episodes going back to 2006. It features former CIA case officer Karen Schaefer, one of my all-time favourite guests. She is charming, smart, thoughtful, has great energy and infectious enthusiasm. And she's a great story to share. She's spent time in back streets and war zones around the world before becoming a serial collaborator, working with the FBI, Special Operations and the National Security Council. The interview with Karen was released in two parts. This re-release is part one, and if you enjoy it, you can find part two on the podcast webpage, thecyberwire.com slash podcasts slash spycast. In this week's episode, Karen and I discuss growing up in Latin America, joining the CIA as a 22-year-old, the CIA in transition, and counterterrorism and counter-narcotics. If you could spare a minute of your time to write a kind review on Apple Podcasts, we'd really appreciate it. Even a single sentence would help, or even a word, as long as it's accompanied by five stars. Next, <laughs> next week, we have a dear friend of the podcast, Mark Polymeropoulos, and a very, very special guest. Let me give you a hint. If there's ever anything that you think 
here's an important ingredient in the dish that makes up Karen Schaefer that, um, that I haven't been cooking <laughs> that you with. Haven't, Just let yes, me know. That you I'm haven't managed to, to elicit. It. <laughs> I will flag you down. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so I, I wondered if just to start, could you tell us how you got into the world of intelligence? Sure, sure. I actually, as they say in Spanish, I hice trampa. I grew up overseas. I, you know, I cheated. I grew up overseas and learned at a very young age that I loved being overseas. I loved learning about new cultures. I loved learning, meeting new people, learning their history, their literature. So I knew coming out of that experience that I wanted to study something that would allow me to continue to live in the world more broadly. And I also had grown up with a father who was in public service. And so serving our country was important to me. And so he was a incredible role model for me. And I, you know, to, to put it bluntly, I followed him in his footsteps, I suppose. Mm. I, I did dabble a little bit, did some paralegal training thinking maybe I would go to law school and do international law. But it was pretty evident to me very early on that what really inspired me and made me happiest was the international affairs world and and as i said following the intrigues and the politics that, you know that drive the international world order and your father was in the military or the no no he was department of state oh, department so of state. spent his career we grew up in latin america i have uh, four brothers and sisters so we tra- my mom god bless her dragged us all over the the southern South American continent, but it was it was a great experience. It was an incredible way to grow up. We grew up learning Spanish, so it was also hugely um, useful in in my future career. So it was great. Uh, I mean, it's one of those experiences that as a child you don't appreciate because you're getting dragged from country to country. And back then there was no internet. You barely had phone calls with family. Uh, you know, there's you'd pass around the Miami Herald around the embassy like it was the you know <laughs> practically wrapped in cellophane so that no one would rip it. So this was not a time when you could really stay connected to people. So when you moved, you sort of knew you weren't going to see those people again. So so you know, as a kid, that's hard to process. But at the end of the day, it, it made us all so much more, I think, resilient probably so much more inclusive. We were the minority in a lot of these places where we were the ones that stuck out and didn't quite fit in. And and so it was a great experience. I, I think it forever shaped me in a positive, in so many ways that I, I probably can't even count all the different ways. So why intelligence then? Why not the mm-hmm. Department of State? Like yeah. you're, if you're following in yeah. your father's footsteps or the military? Or- well, you know, I think it was a it was a good fit for me. It was, you know, I really liked the idea of. I have to say, I have a, a bit of an adventurous streak, and and I definitely liked the idea of being on the front lines and contributing in a way that I felt played to my strengths and. That just seemed like the best fit for my skill set in terms of I'm a very, very much a people person. I'm more extroverted. I love to to have new experiences. And I, in particular, like to be places where 
I know that what I'm doing is meaningful, which of course has driven me to some of the less glamorous <laughs> locations in the world to serve. <laughs> I remember my mother lamenting, why couldn't you get posted just once to somewhere where I would actually be able or want to visit you? <laughs> so I finally got there, but it, it took a while. She was not happy that her daughter was getting sent to places less than desirable that required a lot of intensive training to get there. So, but that's okay. It was, it made me a better person, certainly a much stronger person. And you said paralegal training, but did you join the agency out of college or? Pretty much. Yeah, I did. I graduated in the nineties and it was probably the worst economic, at least during my lifetime until the more recent recession. But when I graduated, it was really tough job market. So I was looking for anything. I did everything from wait tables to uh, temp work. And then, as I said, explored the possibility of going back to grad school. I had applied to the agency while I was in college, but as people may have told you in the past, the agency, the selection process is very rigorous and can take sometimes upwards of two years. And so certainly in my case, it uh, took that long. So I was doing a lot of soul searching and exploration and dabbling in other things. But now we actually have trended away from hiring people straight out of college. And I frankly think that that's generally a good thing. We look for people who have had a bit more work experience mm -hmm. because I think it does when I look back at myself and my first tour, I think, oh my goodness, did they really have that much confidence <laughs> in this 22-year-old young woman who could barely balance her checkbook? But I, I, you know, I think what I will say is that the training is extraordinary and it served me well. I really, they know what they're doing and they really prepared us. And while they often had more confidence in me than I had in myself, they were right. They had prepared us and had given us the tools that we needed to be effective on the streets. And I certainly found that that was my experience. And can you set the scene for us where and when you were when you found out you were accepted? So back then, they did stuff by mail. This was old school, This not email, but the snail mail. So I had received a letter. And honestly, I was somewhat taken aback because it had taken, the process had taken so long. And I had finally called my processor and I had said, hey, listen, I'm about to drop several hundred dollars worth of applications for grad school and for law school. And when I do, I'll pull my application to the agency. So I would really, and she said, well, I can't guarantee that we can give you a response, but let me see what we can do. And I received a letter in the mail that next week <laughs> telling me to report within weeks. And it was, you know, the single most exciting day of my life up until that point. It was so gratifying. It was, um, you, up until that point in time, I was only, I guess, 22 when I, when I was finally accepted. Your experiences are limited, although you don't think they are at that age. <laughs> you get a lot smart. You, the older you get, at least in my case, I feel like the older I get, the more I realize I don't know. At the time, I, I thought I knew a lot more than I did. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think up until that point, it was everything that I had worked towards. I had s sort of always had this idea that I would end up in this world. And the fact that 
I was holding a letter that said, yep, we are, you know, and not only that, but you're starting in a couple of weeks. I, it was extraordinary. So yeah, it, it's hard to put it to words. And it's also hard because you can't really tell anybody. So, so I mean, fortunately, I, I had a, a few folks that I had confided in. But other than that, you immediately go into this this role of managing how you're going to explain to people what you're doing, where you're working, where you work, when you start, all of these things. And it has to jive with what your cover is supposed to be. So at the time, I was living <laughs> with four other young women in a group house in North Arlington. So fortunately, they didn't know a lot about government. So it, my Department of State cover was not impossible to keep up. So that was really helpful. <laughs> <laughs> Do you still have the letter? You know, I don't. Okay. <laughs> because, uh, yeah, and I, I'm not sure. I, honestly, of course, the communication is, I'm, I'm not even sure that it ha it's letterhead or, you know, I think mm -hmm. it's very vanilla. Mm -hmm. But candidly, it's been so long that I cannot, I, I'm sure I would have shredded it or did something with it. But I can't, honestly, I can't even remember what it said other than maybe what they, what level they were hiring me at. Mm -hmm. So no, I do not have it. I did not, <laughs> I didn't, you know, I've been much better on the back end to preserve a few mementos, but on the front end, it's, it's funny. We, you can tell most agency folks have very little Unlike the military, not a lot of paraphernalia to speak to their experiences because unless you roll back your cover, you don't you don't take any of that stuff with you, especially if you spend your most of your career overseas, which mm. I certainly spent the first half of mine there. You you know, you travel light as they say. <laughs> so And did you always want to go into the op side or were you ecumenical? Would you have done other things? No, I, I think I always knew I wanted to be on the operation side. personality? Yeah, I, I joke all the time that my six-year-old son has a bias for action, but I think he comes by it honestly. I, I think I just was always someone who wanted to be out, wanted to be engaging with people, meeting new people, seeking out that opportunity. I don't have the patience or attention span to do some of the extraordinary work that my companions in the analytical and, and technology sides of the house in our business it just would never have played to my strengths. Mm -hmm. So I have incredible respect for them because they have skills that I, and patience and, and uh, <laughs> focus that I, I sadly lack. <laughs> so I think this was ultimately a much better job choice for me. What kind of agency did that 22-year-old Karen Schaefer find when you joined up? I get so many questions about being a woman and joining an organization that was really known as a male-dominated occupation, typically white men, not their fault. That's who was hired. <laughs> but I, I'm happy to say that when I stepped in, it was a an organization in transition. There had just been a class action suit that some of the women in the directorate of operations, which is where I served, had successfully won. And so I was in sort of a good period of transition when I stepped in. And I think there was a much more welcoming environment. And I would say beyond that, it was evolving culturally also that you just didn't have sort of the tyrannical leadership that you would see male or female in the organization. People were starting to get much smarter about 
having a healthy work environment, not to suggest it's perfect. It's not. I, we still, in our organization, my biggest lament is that we still struggle so much with hiring diverse candidates, not just women, but also ethnic minorities. And frankly, when you are going after an adversary, you want as many people who look and speak and act differently as possible. You want this, you want to be able to select from a menagerie of different people to go after whoever your adversary is. And we still are not checking the block when it comes to diversity. I mean, we have some extraordinary officers who have tried really hard to and focused very specifically on this topic. I was even part of what was called diversity leadership study in one of our DO representatives to that study a couple of years ago where it it was a compliment to there had also been a, a woman's a similar study done on the the female male gap. This one focused on diversity in the context, more specifically in the context of ethnic minorities. And it's not as if people don't understand the challenges. It's just that we have not been creative enough or consistent enough with solutions to get at the real problems. And I think it also reflects a lot of what we're seeing now in the general population. I mean, I think there is institutional bias and there is discrimination that, you know, there's a lot of talk about unconscious bias and it's a very real thing. And I saw it and I know that I was probably party to it unknowingly. And so, so I think having said all of that, because I've sort of gone off on a tangent, but (laughs) but an important one, because I think it's an important topic and certainly very relevant to what we're experiencing more broadly as a nation right now. It's a, it's a good reckoning. And hopefully the folks that are in positions of leadership now inside the agency will be a heck of a lot more successful than we were. I think you've certainly seen from this administration, they've been very specific about choosing leaders that they felt were represented a more diverse composition of this melting pot that is our country. <laughs> and so I think that that promises good things, but it's it's always going to be a struggle. And and there's also just the challenge that our organization is misunderstood in many ways. And it also has a history that can be very complicated. And so there are a lot of ethnic minorities who we struggle to recruit because they are very suspicious or they come from countries that are authoritarian, that view any association with the state as something bad. And so we struggle with a lot of those stereotypes and a lot of those cultural divides that, again, we're working to try to address, but we're not there yet. So I did step into, as I said, a a organization in transition, but one that frankly, I found very welcoming. Mm -hmm. And I think also, I say all the time I had this group, a cohort, you know, you go through your training and trial by fire. And it was uh, mostly men. There were a handful of women, but mostly men. But I joke that their women were the, you know, the powerhouses at at home and and they tended to be the breadwinners, especially when we were all first starting out in government, that's for sure. And so, so I think that was changing in society more broadly. And so that obviously affected their thinking and the importance of things like you know, going forward in an organization, the importance of things like 
parental leave, tandem assignments, taking care of families, especially once we started to deploy to war zones. So I think it's it's changed the organization for the better in a lot of good ways. But obviously still there, you, you can never be satisfied. And we have learned the important lesson that if your whole family isn't healthy and happy, then you're not going to be successful in the mission. So from my optic, certainly a great place to be starting out. And I I still look back and, and find it remarkable, the opportunities that I was given, the time, energy, and money that was invested in me. So I feel really, really fortunate. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. It's always struck me that with intelligence or strategic intelligence, it's inherently outward facing, looking Mm -hmm. out to the world. And as a relative outsider, Mm -hmm. it's always seemed to me that one of the great strengths that America has is that it's so diverse Mm -hmm. um, compared to, say, somewhere like China. I used to joke with a friend that they should set up a, um, they sh- you know, they should kind of like hand out forms in Queens, New York. Um, uh, I used yeah. to live in New York and that, you know, yeah. that's meant to be the most diverse yep. place on the planet, like mm-hmm. over a hundred languages. Yeah. Just go to Queens and hand out yeah. forms. But yeah. Um, yeah, that's always struck me as a, as a strength that mm-hmm. if it's not being utilized, then yep. it's a missed opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And as I said, I think we've, We've tried a lot of different initiatives. I don't think you can place, you can put your finger on one specific problem that we've encountered that would solve, you know, if we, if we could only fix that, then the diversity problem wouldn't be a problem anymore. I think it's going to continue for all the reasons that I said before, but that just means we double down, right? That means we have to really focus our efforts and, you know, provide additional rigor behind the efforts to not just identify potential candidates, but then also, which is another part of the process, get them through the screening process, because we also lose a lot of folks that, you know, are incredible assets, but struggle to get, could be potentially incredible assets to the organization and to national security that struggle to get through the security screening process. And this is not unique to the agency. This is across the intelligence community, finding that right balance between vetting and making sure that you're being conscientious about CI concerns, but also allowing for those more diverse candidates to be able to make it through the screening process. Mm -hmm. So it's a a work in progress to be sure. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to ask a super uh, unfair question. Ah, okay. (laughs) Have at it. (laughs) What what did you prefer? Did you prefer, prefer it when you were in your Mm twenties and you were in the early stages Mm -hmm. and it was all new and you were out in the field 
or did you prefer it when you were towards the end of your career mm-hmm. and managing strategic change and yeah. responsible for much more like or, or yeah. are they just both equally enjoyable in different ways? Yeah, I would say not a terribly unfair question, <laughs> but but I will say that all of the above. I mean, I can honestly say and and I think most people who have had you know, or have had wonderful careers can, can point to this, that I am a tapestry of all of my experiences, good and bad. And I would say that certainly my time in the field was the most adventurous. I mean, that is when you absolutely feel like you are at the pointy end of the spear. There is nothing, it's hard to imagine anything that gives you more of an adrenaline boost than you know, doing your first recruitment or doing an operation successfully that you know could potentially impact national security. That's a, a pretty heady experience. And to your point, as a young person, everything was so new. And I, at the time, happened to be single. So I was completely unencumbered and I could focus on work with very little else to to really hinder me. And so it was... It was an incredible run of, I would say, almost 10 years straight serving overseas. But having said all of that, I feel like all those experiences ultimately led me back to some headquarters positions where towards the end of my career, if I had to to value or sort of assess where I felt like I had most impact was the latter part of my career and some of those unexpected jobs that I would say where I was really focused on collaboration, whether it was my time at the NSC or my time as the deputy in our military affairs office or even my time on rotation to the FBI. Those are assignments where I felt like they really played to my strengths and, you know, the serial collaborator, having, you know, spent so much time overseas learning about other cultures, learning to be a student of people in a way, you know, really observing and and learning from people. That was, I think, the talent that I honed and acquired. And I was good at building teams and bringing people together to the table to have difficult conversations about really important things. And so, yeah, it's hard to say. And I honestly, I say this all the time that I feel like every job and some of them, I, you know, we have, uh, we joke, it's you're voluntold <laughs> to take an assignment. And, and several of my latter assignments were those types of jobs. And I had an amazing sponsor in the organization who was the extra at the time. And she, you know, she off, often saw ways in which I could contribute to the mission more meaningfully than I even saw myself. And and she was thoughtful enough to direct me towards some of those assignments to say, hey, you need to be thinking about this, which is why I always tell, you know, young women, that's always my big advice. Like when people tell you that you're ready for something, believe them. They won't, <laughs> smart people will not invest in you and they won't offer you something unless they know you're up to that challenge. And it was something that I didn't always appreciate at the time, but boy, in hindsight, I'm such a a big, which is why I spend so much time now mentoring and, and trying from the outside to look for ways to give back. And you mentioned there the tapestry of your experiences, good and bad. Mm-hmm. Could you give us another unfair question? Sure. <laughs> was that, what was like 
if you could look back on one mm-hmm. thing, it doesn't have to be the definitive thing, right. but what one thing stands out as being, that was one of my fondest memories, first recruitment, uh, um, right. collaboration, whatever. Yeah. And what, and what would be the, the worst or what was the, the low point of your career? So I would say, let's see. I'll start with the positive just because, and I will say this is an unfair one because I just, I feel like there are so many extraordinary moments, but I I would say just if I had to pick an assignment that I felt like pulled me out of my comfort zone, but where I saw the best in people and in my colleagues at work and, and just even in myself tapping into reservoirs of you know, courage and and patience that I didn't even think I had would be helping to set up one of our first bases in Afghanistan. And just, it was such an extraordinary experience. I was the only woman on the team and it was a small group of us, just a handful of us. And we were literally kind of out there on our own. And it was building something from scratch was really an, just an extraordinary experience experience, but then also dealing with the locals because we were in that honeymoon period where there was such a sense of hope. And, you know, I remember meeting women who had been on the Loya Jurga and, and just talking to them about, you know, all that they wanted to try to accomplish in the country now that the Taliban was gone and having that opportunity and, and working with the, the Karzai government to, to try to, build up, you know, create that sense of nationhood and pride in Afghanistan again. It was just an incredibly heady experience. And I also happened at the time, my the chief of the base was wonderful. And I always questioned my ability as a woman to be able to operate in an environment like that. And he, I'll never forget, we were meeting with one of our assets and he was so fantastic. He sat down with the guy and basically said through our translator, hey, you're going to be dealing with Karen from now on and she is going to be your point and anything you need, resources, she'll work with you on plans, et cetera, provide you the resources you need. And he got up and left. And it was... It seems like a small thing when I tell the story, but mm. it was such an extraordinary move on his part that showed so much trust in me and confidence in me as a young officer. And this person sitting across from me then realized, well, I've got no choice but to deal with this woman. So I guess I will have mm. to deal with this woman. And and we had, you know, we were very successful in working through multiple programs out there. So that's when you really feel like you have an opportunity to do that kind of work and have that direct and oftentimes immediate impact. It's it's pretty extraordinary experience. I will say that it makes seeing what's happening in Afghanistan now fairly torturous because I look at at, at where it's as we start to draw down and well, we've already drawn down essentially, but as we pull out the last, I'm somewhat skeptical that the Taliban will hold to any of its promises. And I think it's going to be in particular for the women of that country. I think there's, it's going to be bleak for the foreseeable future. I, I certainly hope that I am wrong, but I don't, I, I don't think I'm probably 
wrong on this front. So, so that, but it was nevertheless feeling at that time that you could be a part of something so meaningful was really a great experience. This was what, December 2001 or something? No. So this was after the paramilitary and the military had gone through. So this was later. This would have been in mid 2002. We were starting to build out a footprint in, you know, different regions. And so we were helping to set up one of the important bases to work with our military, but also with more importantly, with the locals on building out, you know, programs that would help, as I said, help to, to try to cement the defeat of the Taliban and (laughs) (laughs) yes, and ensure the propagation of democracy. So anyway, As with all things, you can't always anticipate how things will turn out, but you still have got to fight the fight every day, right? <laughs> you got to get up and, and uh, you, in that respect, you have to be indefatigable and, and, and that can be hard, but it's important. I think mm-hmm. you, you got to stay true to, to the fight, even when it sometimes feels like you're syphious. <laughs> so. <laughs> Pushing it back yeah, up the hill. Yeah, pushing the rock back <laughs> up the hill. Yes, exactly. And a low point? Was there a particular... A low point? Let's see. I would say that's hard. I, I'm i struggling a little. I think my challenges inside the organization, uh, it was never... I never had any challenge with the mission or I loved everywhere that I lived and I served. And I think if I had challenges, they were usually personality-based managers, things like that. I think I would say the toughest period may have been when I came back from the field and realized just for personal reasons, family mostly, elder care issues, but then I also ended up getting married and, and had a child that some of my desire to be out in the field, it, it was a lot tougher. A husband who was in the military and finding places that we could both serve together was exceedingly difficult. When we finally did, we realized that it wasn't, you know, the right time for personal reasons. So I, I guess career-wise, that would probably be a low point in terms of not being able to necessarily continue being out in the field where really that's, it's the hardest work, but it's also the most invigorating, the most rewarding in many ways. But I say that, and yet, as I alluded to earlier, I really feel like where I ultimately had the greatest impact was not out in the field where I served multiple tours, but really was back at headquarters when I could really grow my understanding of not just our organization, but the intelligence community and then the national security apparatus more broadly. Mm. So while I say that was a low point, I think it was short-lived in the sense that I really did enjoy a lot of the more strategic and we are prescribed from policy making, but you do have to understand the policy process. You have to, and and certainly when I was down at the NSC, that you take a buy on that because you are helping to develop and, or at least um, align the data points so that the policymakers can make informed decisions. And so I really, I thrived on that and I enjoyed even... (laughs) 
Some of the long, dark hours in the salt mines of the NSC (laughs) were some of the most extraordinary. Had the good fortune to be there when they did the UBL operation. And I was one of the, my girlfriend and I joke that we were both read in because they needed glorified staplers and copiers to build the books for all of the principals and to take notes during the meetings. And so let me tell you, I would have... I would have picked the coffee beans, ground the coffee and made the coffee <laughs> to do that. And it was, you know, again, talk about an extraordinary and humbling experience was to sit in those meetings and hear the very thoughtful deliberations about that operation and and to have so much pride in how that decision-making was undertaken and how we got to that point, understanding the interagency collaboration. Mm. That w- that's why I'm such a huge believer in interagency collaboration because I've actually wit- I've witnessed <laughs> firsthand how extraordinarily powerful, and by powerful, I don't mean necessarily guns. And, of course, everybody knows the Navy SEALs are fabulous. I get it. My husband's a Navy SEAL. I think he's fabulous, but... That's not the powerful part. The powerful part are the 10 years that these agency analysts, these NGA analysts, these NSA signatures, I mean, these these young people, they're kids, they're young people who are so passionate about this that they spent literally, you know, decades tracking the smallest leads to ultimately culminate in this operation. Yeah, it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. And to even be the copier and stapler, I'm I'm totally self-actualized <laughs> with that role. I, I can honestly <laughs> say I was so fortunate uh, and so grateful to be a witness. And also just the pride in, as I said, the, the policymaking and, and the decision-making and just the rigor that was put into how that was executed was really... Our government doesn't always work really effectively, but I think that's an example of one where all the synapses were firing (laughs) at at once and everything. It it was sort of the perfect alignment and, as evidenced, proved to be very successful. you were in the room for the planning stage or the execution stage or both? So I was brought in late because it was extraordinarily compartmented. So I was really there at the phase where they were. Now they were at that phase where they were asking around the room, what percent confidence do you have that, that, you know, and they had already red celled the heck out of it. I, I actually love your exhibit that, that the spy museum has here. And if folks haven't seen it, you should come see it because it's pretty marvelous. But it's Michael Morell. He was deputy director at the time. And he's also a former, he, he was chief of analysis for years and years. And so he does this great walkthrough of the red selling that was done about who could this guy be if all, you know, and, and basically throwing everything but the kitchen sink at it, having multiple different, all sorts of folks with different backgrounds looking at this and saying, if it's not him, then who? And it just, again, it's the way government should work. And it's, Mm -hmm. and it also demonstrates, I think, it underscores that despite how the movies may capture things, 
our government, you know, the agency in particular is not this rogue organization that's just running out and, you know, taking people out. There is an incredible process of oversight. There's an incredible, you know, both from the policy side of the house, but then also, you know, congressional oversight, which controls the money, which as we know, (laughs) is where, where everything starts and stops. So I think it really, again, just demonstrates the best from that perspective as well. Very thoughtful, thoughtful planning and execution. So I, I was definitely on the latter latter part of that, but it was still, as I said, pretty extraordinary to witness. Did you get to pitch in what percentage you thought it was to succeed? <laughs> I was the note taker. Okay. There, were, there were a lot. Okay. Just about everybody in the room was more important than I was. <laughs> Andrew, let me, be, let me be clear. <laughs> everybody in the room. I don't know why I said just about everybody. Everybody in the room was... No, I, I mean, it was a very thoughtful and deliberate process. And they did have the experts come in regularly to brief on, you know, day-to-day changes. So they were hearing from the closest we had to real intelligence day-to-day what was what was changing. So they had plenty of smart people weighing in. They didn't need my, my thoughts on it. <laughs> Even although they never thought to ask, I would like to ask, did you... Yeah. Inside, oh. inside yourself, did you think this is a slam dunk or this is a bit, I'm not sure, or were you oh, no. like Mike Morell, this is 50-50? Or? Yeah, I was, surprisingly, I was more confident and probably because Michael's a lot smarter than I am and, and I'm just the case officer with the bias for action, but I, I was more confident. I had worked in the CT world for quite a while. I think people, understandably, especially you know, given some past missteps with things like the Iraq, you know, WMD issue, people were being very cautious to measure expectations, which I think is a very wise thing. And I think it's really smart to say what you don't know, not just what you do know. And I think they did that really exceptionally well. For me, what won me over was the red selling. And again, when you start to go through it, who else would it be and who else could it be? And so the actual execution of the operation, you know, I had spent an entire year in the war zone with Joint Special Operations Command. I have to admit, I I never was concerned about the execution piece just because they were, I had seen them so many times in action and I I thought wow if any like if anybody's going to pull it off it is this group of guys because they are the elite of the elite and they're extraordinary and they have all of these resources available to them so it was less about of course like everyone else you do worry about and this is the part that is the much more strategic piece because what you can't anticipate is the fallout. What does this mean for our relationship with Pakistan? When they find out, will they feel so humiliated that they shut down the supply lines to Afghanistan because we were still in the middle of that? And that's huge implications. And I think that was certainly driving some of the reservations, well, I know it was driving the reservations that folks like Gates had about doing the operation. But I always liked Panetta's assessment of this, which was his advice. I remember hearing in it, we did this interview in honor of the anniversary. And he said, you know, my advice to the president was simple. What would my constituents back home say if they knew 
we had a, a, a shot to get this guy. Wasn't 100% it was him. There could be fallout. But I don't know. That's what guided most of his decision-making when he was in Congress. And, and that what guided his advice to the president. And I think that's just very well said. Mm-hmm. I, I think my view was you cannot not take the chance, the opportunity, because as evidenced, it took us 10 years to get to that point. And there's nothing to say that we would have ever, ever had an opportunity like that again. And Interestingly enough, we found out after we went through much of the SSE that he was still much more involved in the day-to-day operations and running of the organization than most of us had thought. And we thought he had sort of hunkered down, gone under. And yeah, I think I, I don't know that I would quantify exactly, but mine was probably more than 50. You know, I was probably more in the 60-40 range, maybe even higher, 70-30. I, I was more confident and and that was just probably influenced by my desire for it to be true. <laughs> <laughs> so Michael's probably much more, his approach was much more methodical than mine was, <laughs> I will say. Mine was tinged probably with a lot of emotional components. <laughs> so that's why he was in charge and I was taking notes. <laughs> so... <laughs> Speaking about that raid, let's do a jump cut back in time to nine eleven. Where, mm-hmm. where were you in that day? How oh. did you find out the news? Yeah, so I mean, like so many people, I watched the second plane hit on uh, on television. Initially, you know, I was hearing the buzz. I was literally checking in. Remember I had told you that my mother was so upset that I never got posted anywhere nice. I was finally in my very first nice posting. I was literally in the RSO's office, which is the regional security officer, checking in, getting my badge for the embassy. And I watched the second plane hit. And I knew immediately that everything was going to change. I mean, I, I just, I knew, and I knew that I probably wasn't going to be spending much time in the post I was at. And so uh, that's actually shortly thereafter, about a year later is when I, vo- I volunteered for one of the early surges. And because I had spent several years prior to that in, in our highest threat posts, I had already had a lot of the defensive, all of the personal training, defensive driving, firearms training. So I was someone that could pretty easily deploy fairly quickly. And so I immediately threw my name into the hat and said, and again, as I mentioned before, at the time I was unencumbered. It was so much easier for someone like me to deploy than folks that had family and whatnot. So I certainly felt like most other Americans and not just Americans, there were lots of folks that were lost that were, you know, it was a, a hit on the whole world, I think. And I just think that, like so many others, I, I wanted to do anything that I could to try to try to help. And as I said, it ended up being one of the, really a transformation. It was transformational in, in terms of my career as well, because from that point on, I really did focus heavily on sort of that Near East region as well as counterterrorism for the rest of of my career. And that's where... I spent a lot of time working with the military, which started my, you know, my serial collaborator trajectory <laughs> where I, I started to to really like to work more with the other agencies and, and find ways that we could 
problem solve jointly as opposed to independently. And how long had you been in by that point? Did you say mid-90s? You, you... Yeah, so I had been in, yeah, I guess by 9-11, it would have been almost short of a decade. But yeah, I would say I had, I was going on my third tour. So I had been in for about seven or eight years. Mm-hmm. And that switch over to counterterrorism mm-hmm. and serial collaboration. Yeah. <laughs> Help us understand that more. I'm always reminded of this mm-hmm. person who was on the Afghan desk at the mm-hmm. State Department way back when the Soviets invaded. Right. And, and they said, you know, no one was more surprised than me to find themselves at the, <laughs> at at the, the center of all these right, events because, exactly. because the Afghan desk is where your career right. went to die. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've heard other people say that at the agency, mm-hmm. like counterterrorism was right. also, that's when you're, that's where your career goes to die or stall or yeah. when you get put out to pasture. Help us understand that pivot to, to counterterrorism after 9-11 yeah. just for you? Yeah, I mean, for me personally, interestingly enough, I started my career in Latin America. And so, you know, people won't remember that. I mean, this generation, so many of them have been born post 9-11. They don't even remember 9-11. But before 9-11, before the war on terror, there was something called the war on drugs. And I was pretty intimately familiar with that. I spent a lot of time in the region focused on that. So I had a similar pedigree, but it was just focused. But a lot of the the effort and a lot of the very early tools that we used in the war on terror to try to figure out who these groups were and who all these people were and the analytical tools, the targeting tools, very similar. There was a there was a, a way to translate that. And so not surprisingly, a lot of the people that had previously worked in counter-narcotics were an easy fit to transition to counterterrorism because they understood that, you know, you have to look at you can't just look at, at a terror organization and look at a leadership. You have to sort of understand the whole organization to mm-hmm. know how to go after it most effectively. So for me personally, the transition was really, I mean, it was that initial, what we call temporary deployment to help start that base. But then after that, most of my s- subsequent assignments, as I said, were in that region because quite a bit of the resources the agency had were shifted in a pretty meaningful way to focus on building our relationships with countries in the region that could help us thwart future attacks against the homeland as well as against American citizens overseas. And so not surprisingly, the Near East Division at the time and now the um, Mission Center, Near East Mission Center, had an outsized role in that, and as did Counterterrorism Center. Counterterrorism Center, you're exactly right. I mean, there was a handful of folks, and it had been up and running for quite a while. I'm not sure it would I would characterize it necessarily as the place that people go to die, but it certainly wasn't where you're getting a lot of face time. I think they sort of first came on the scene in the 90s under Clinton when we were first realizing who this Osama bin Laden character was and we were starting to see things like the coal bomb, you know, the bombings in Africa. And we were thinking, huh, okay, like what is what is this? And and so fortunately, there was something that existed called CTC. And candidly, I spent 
no time focused on counterterrorism until 9-11. So it, it was, we were all learning as we went and we were absolutely, we had a handful of, of Arabists and linguists and some folks, again, that had built up much more of a knowledge base on counterterrorism. But for most of us, this was all very new. And so we, it was like building a 747 in flight. And, you know, I have to say that one of the things that I do love about our organization is that, you know, we never let the difficult stay, stand in the way of the possible. And I swear to you, we had, you know, our support people were out on the ground setting up bases before you knew it. I mean, it was unbelievable. We had our paramilitary officers, their partnership with the military, they built that out. They they were on the front lines and they were immediately, immediately an integral factor in success, in a, the initial success in Afghanistan. And I, I just, when you look back on your career, and even though I look at Afghanistan now and I'm traumatized, I still, it's, it's impossible not to take pride in our ability to turn on a dime and to be that responsive, given most people couldn't find it. As you joked, you know, most people wouldn't be able to find Afghanistan on a map, myself included, probably until we actually went there. If I could find it on a map, I probably couldn't tell you much more than that. And the fact that it's, you know, state capital, I mean, the capital was Kabul. You know? So, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's sort of a point of pride. I think when I think about the agency, it's one of the, the best descriptor, descriptors is that agility, that ability for our officers to get very smart very quickly and the other beauty is that, you know, for a lot of us, the country is less relevant than the tradecraft, even though, again, this was different tradecraft because you had so many just personal security threats, not just counterintelligence threats. But it, we got very smart about training our people. We had a really rigorous sort of pipeline set up within, I would say, less than a year. Initially, it was more sporadic, but within a year, we had training set up. We had a whole process in place. We were making sure people knew when they were being hired, guess what? Your first stop is probably going to be a war zone. So keep that in mind before you sign on the dotted line. So yeah, it was really impressive. And it's, and I think it's that agility that makes the agency such a valuable resource to policymakers because we really, we can, even in some ways, much, we are so much more agile than the military just because of its sheer size. And, and we can do things very quickly, which is why our guys were the first in, in Afghanistan and not the military. And that's not a criticism. It's just a, a fact. And it's why we exist. And for the war on drugs, are we talking like the mm -hmm. Colombian cartels, the Mexican mm -hmm. cartels, yep. all of the above? Yes, all of the above. Yeah. You know, it was a fascinating time. Thanks for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Go to our webpage where you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes, and full transcripts. We have over 500 episodes in our back catalogue, 
for you to explore. Please follow the show on Twitter at INTL Spycast and share your favourite quotes and insights or start a conversation. If you have any additional feedback, please email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, and you can connect with me on LinkedIn or follow me on Twitter at Spy Historian. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artefacts, the International Spy Museum. The Spycast team includes Mike Mincy and Memphis Vaughn III. See you for next week's show. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.